Hi, I'm Michael. I'm a podcaster, entrepreneur, investor, improv artist, and I just took my first stand-up class. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, I'm also a TV host, and I'm your host for what we call the Second Scene Podcast. It is a Dweebs Global production. That is why we do the podcast, dweebsglobal.org. They get free mentorship help from everything from resume writing to mental health. It's completely confidential and it's completely free, dweebsglobal.org. So I'm here today. My guest today is Amani Roberts. There is so much to say in his in his resume and his LinkedIn. So I'm just going to narrow it down to a few so we can get the interview started. So Amani is a professor at California State University. He's in the process of completing his master's degree from Berkeley College of Music. And he is a DJ music producer, having worked with the likes of Usher, Sade, and Brandy, just to name a few. So thanks for joining us. Awesome. Amani. Yeah. Nice to meet you, Michael. Glad to be here. Nice, 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 nice to have you. Uh, you've you've done quite a lot. What came first, the chicken or the egg, the music or the or the teaching? <laughs> uh, well, the music came first, the DJ came first, and then through my involvement in a professional association is how the teaching came along. Okay. So how long have you been teaching for? So now I am up to almost four years. So three and a half years now I've been a professor at Cal State University Fullerton. Okay. Was that something you had ever thought you were going to do? No, I... <laughs> I grew up the son of a professor, college professor, Howard University. I wanted nothing to do with being a teacher, but yet somehow, some way, it happened for me. I'm very grateful that it happened. It was life changing. And um, here I am just yeah. fight, trying to fight it. It still got there. So it's cool. <laughs> That's funny. I, you know, I, I'm in a business my father was in and I did everything I could to get away from it. I moved to New York City. I was like, I'm never. And yet that's where I ended up. Yeah, yeah, I can relate. <laughs> and I'm happy I'm here. It's worked out great. So yeah, I can relate likewise. to that as well. Me too. So what is it that you do teach? I teach two classes in a school of business and economics. The first class is called Entertainment Money Management. And so I teach in the school of the EHM Center. I'm the co-director of the Entertainment Hospitality Management Center. This class focuses on how venues earn money, hotels, casinos, amusement parks, gaming, the music industry, and then streaming services and movies, just how those different uh, categories earn revenue and then the careers involved with them. Um, and then I also teach project management. So I teach those two classes. Okay. Which of those is the most profitable? In terms of? In terms of the venues, the online streaming. Oh, I'm partial to the music industry because there's a lots of opportunity for long money through like songwriting, sync licensing, things like that. Um, so I think that if you can find a way to, to make it work in the music industry, you can make a good amount of money. It just takes time. Got you. Is, um, I know musicians have had, had a real hard time making money with the streaming services. Is that changing or is that? I would say that is not going to change. I think the streaming services like that's, that's almost like more marketing than monetary or revenue generating. But you, you can earn money from like getting your music placed in like an advertisement, a video game, a commercial, a movie. That's a big opportunity there. You know, merchandise is also a good way that's kind of slept on. Touring. Now, touring is evolving because of, you know, we're in COVID and so things are a little different. But that's always um, another revenue generating aspect. I just think that now more than ever after what happened last year and most of this year, like musicians have learned to diversify their income streams. And that way they're not solely dependent on their streams on Spotify or YouTube or things like that, because the revenue there is not what was once anticipated. Gotcha. Yeah. The, is there any money in selling your actual music at this point? 
Yeah, it's because everything is so streaming. So you can get a little bit of money from like mechanical royalties in terms of selling like, you know, a single here, maybe an album. But the music world has changed so much where it went from, you know, we were back in the day, you pretty much had to buy the album to get the song you wanted. Now you don't even need to like buy the album. You can stream the single and just get it that way. Watch it on YouTube. You don't need to purchase it. So as musicians, we have to be more creative. Right. I was just on Spotify earlier today creating a playlist. Yeah. I didn't buy any of the songs. It's all yeah. just It's all yeah. part of your monthly your monthly service fee. If you pay for Spotify by the month, if you choose to have the ad version, you, you might not have to pay anything. So it's it's a very complex game that continues to evolve month to month. Right. Is does anyone make good money off of Spotify other than Spotify? <laughs> well the the big three record labels get a nice good chunk also. Um, so they make money. I think you know, Spotify is there. It works. It just takes a long time and a lot of streams. And for the, the 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 artists who are not in the top ten or top twenty, it's it's a long haul to just depend on Spotify. You have to do other things like a Patreon, and you know maybe live streaming some concerts, creative with your merch. I do think the subscription services like a Patreon can really really help because it will cut kind of cut out the middle man or woman. And then you don't really need, you only really need, like um, Kevin Kelly says, a thousand true fans. And then you can really start to duplicate and get some revenue that way. Of course, the most famous person, in my opinion, who's had success with like crowdfunding or services like Patreon is Amanda Palmer. She funds all her albums that way, but she she puts a lot of work into it. So it pays off for her. Right. Uh, yeah, if you don't have any, it's the benefit of not having the middleman is the money comes right to you but the negative <laughs> aspect of it is it's all you yes <laughs> yes exactly yeah. a lot of getting in the grind are there companies out there that are starting to almost act like record companies but they're doing your patreon and all of that there are some services that will do that in you know record companies are evolving too they realize that the money that they used to depend on is not out there so they're providing more a la carte services for artists like artists might not necessarily want to sign their master recordings over to a record label so the record labels are being a little more flexible and allowing the artists to keep their master recordings but offer them marketing services um, playlist placement services you just spoke about that they're offering them maybe they <clears throat> excuse me they can be the facilitator for them getting sync licensing so the record companies have the relationships with the um i'm forgetting the proper term but the people who place the music in the movies, films, and commercials. So they're a la carte services that are starting to open up an offer, which is encouraging. Okay. Um, it's It's been neat to kind of watch it from the outside. It evolve yeah. and everything you're saying, we can kind of see going on. Um, yeah. I don't exactly. know if the, the panic music, is probably... Music supervisor is the job title I was speaking of. Those are the people who will place artist music in films, commercials, video games. Music supervisors are important people. Okay, were you, have you been in music long enough where you went through the panic phase of, oh no, there's no money to be made. And you know, now we're, we're it almost feels like now we're in another building phase of, yeah, there is money I, to be made, it's just I different. came into the industry on the, the tail end. So I didn't really have to live through that, but I studied it so much through like my work at Berkeley and I lived it as a consumer. So I saw the evolution from cassette tape to CDs, to then MP3s, to albums being leaked, to then you can get iTunes, to now Spotify. So, and you know, we'll, we'll see what's next. So I've lived it. I'm just kind of coming on the back end as a educator of it. Mm -hmm. And then also, you know, writing a book that kind of refers to what happened. 
and then trying to determine what services we can offer for independent new artists that will help to close the knowledge gap. Because the conversation you and I are having right now, many artists that come to the scene aren't aware of what we're talking about. And so we need to close the knowledge gap because if they're aware of it, then they might be in a better position to more effectively negotiate with the record label. And so it's just important to kind of talk and try to close the knowledge gap because then the independent artists will benefit. Got you. I, I think the negotiations with the record labels have always been a problem. <laughs> yes. You always, I don't know, I always, you always hear the stories. It's always the, the rock documentaries about how they lost their music to the record label or yeah. taken yeah. advantage of. And yeah. Although I think that nowadays artists are with, you know, this is probably one of the few good things about social media is that the artists are kind of taking to social media to share some of their struggles so that it's no longer a secret what happens. You know, contracts are being shared. So, at least we have that going for it, that it's more public eyes on just what record labels do. Now, there are some really, really great and collaborative record labels, but then there are not also a bunch, too. Okay. So, Drew, so uh, you've really studied the history. I was always fascinated. They went from iTunes, where it was like, this is great. We got rid of Napster, and now people are paying pretty much full price, if not more, on iTunes. And then it went to the streaming services, where there was no money to be made. I guess there was no way to cut that off. That was just a natural progression. Like how, I don't yeah. understand why it wouldn't have been like, no, shut those down, keep it on iTunes. Or... Well, if you look at Napster, that was technically streaming to a point. Like you could stream, you, you could download, you could listen. Um, so it was going to happen regardless. It's just that Spotify was able to partner with the labels to give them some equity and then the labels would then give them their catalogs that they could stream and have it available on Spotify. So that's kind of why it's a little different. And just the advent of streaming, in my opinion, has changed albums to, it's more about a single world. It's just more about how many singles can you put out, maybe a remix. They use something called like the waterfall strategy where you'll see many artists will drop a single on a Friday, another one the next Thursday, another week after. It's just different than how the industry used to be where you would just get the albums would always come out on Tuesday mornings. You go to the record store and pick them up and it's different now. So we have to adjust. Artists need to adjust to say, okay, maybe I had work on a collaboration with target and I'll release my album through our singles through target. So I can get exposure to their kind of audience, release an exclusive single two weeks before I release it on like a Spotify or an iTunes. And it's just, which is good. Artists are thinking more, collaboratively with brands and it's not just about releasing it in record stores but if they can partner with a major brand like an apple target you know walmart even you know guitar center some of these major brands then it's beneficial for all parties and they get more revenue they get a sponsorship maybe right that just I, i'm sure you know 99 of the artists out there that just sounds like an impossibility though yeah. it sounds like such a far reach it uh it is very challenging but I encourage all smart artists to just, if you just cultivate your community, start with 10, then try to get to 100 people. If you get 500 loyal people that are going to buy, whether it's a new piece of merchandise that you have out, a new shirt, uh, and you know, they might buy your record, your album, like that adds up quickly, especially if you don't have much extra cost. You don't have significant cost, that can be okay. And then you can tour and you can do other things too. And then maybe you can stream on, like, I'm a big fan of Twitch. You could stream on a service like Twitch. You can earn revenue there. You can build your audience. Like, it's more about what can you do as an artist to organically build your audience where it's not really about quantity. But if you get 
you know, 700, 1,000 people who are loyal to you and they're spending, you know, 20, 30, $40 a month maybe on you, that adds up over the year. Right, right. I remember going to Tower Records and sorting through all the records. I mean, it's uh, it's sad that people don't have that opportunity no, anymore. Yeah, no. yeah, it's an issue, but we have to adjust to how it is now and still figure out ways for artists to promote themselves and earn revenue. Right. I, I pulling this out of a hat. Uh, was there a panic when they went from records to maybe tapes because they didn't release singles anymore? I know there was like probably a lot of income involved with just the singles. Yeah, when we look at the history of music, there was anytime there was any new technology, going from the eight track to vinyl, oh, that worked because of this and that. Going from vinyl to cassette, oh, that's crazy. I believe there were lawsuits against car companies who had cassette tapes in the car because this, you know, we have a problem where we're so afraid of new technology that we just want to sue to get rid of it. Like there was lawsuits about the Walkman. You know, and all these things, iTunes, big suits. I mean, there's always lawsuits when new technology is involved because, you know, the record labels are very slow to adjust and very slow to adapt. Napster came along, they put them out of business, and then record labels ended up having, you know, some of the worst stretches of revenue record, the music industry from like 2007 to about 2011 or 12. There's a chart and you see the dip. So, yes, to answer your question, that's a long way of saying yes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I mean, record tape recorder, you could record. You couldn't yeah. record when it was record players. Mm -hmm. I remember yeah. setting my record player up next to my recorder so I could record my Kiss album. Yeah. yeah. And then the yeah. challenge comes then once you take that recording and duplicate it, try to sell it, then we have an issue because that is legal. Right, right. So, yeah. yeah. Right. I mean, it's like the designer bags you see now all on the corners everywhere. And, yeah. you know, it, it used to be cassette tapes that they would be selling on the corners mm -hmm. everywhere. Yes, I remember. <laughs> um. What a what a fascinating history. Is there anything even pre pre record? The photograph was that, and the, the I think live performances. There was trepidation about live performancing too. I mean, it's just crazy when you look at the history. I'm not too familiar with kind of the phonograph era, but I know that there was trepidation about is this allowed? Can you perform this music live and not, you know, is that legal? It's crazy when you think about it, but a lot of things we take for advantage now were frowned upon or tried to, were attempted to be outlawed back in the day. Yeah, I'd imagine. Now that I'm thinking back, it's, you know, I, I don't know if you remember the movie Footloose. Yeah. <laughs> Just the dancing they did in it. Mm -hmm. I'm sure it was the same before that. It was like the music is, can we be this loud? Like, exactly. oh my God, this loud. Just being mm -hmm. loud probably sounded like Satan to him or something. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> oh, fascinating. Um, is this anything to do with, I know you're an author as well. Does this have to do with what you're writing? Yes. So the, the, the title of my second book is, I don't know the title yet, but the subject is Why There No Longer Any Black R&B Groups on the Billboard Top 20. And when you look at music history, starting in the 50s, all the way up through about 2004, there were always black R&B groups on the Billboard kind of hot 100 charts. Like the 60s and 70s, you had like the Isley Brothers, you had the Temptations, you would have, when you get to the 80s and 90s, New Edition, then TLC, Boys to Men, SWV, Destiny's Child, like all these groups dominated the charts. And then all of a sudden in 2004, just kind of fell off a cliff. So what happened? Why did it happen? And what's going to happen in the future? That's the topic and the subject of the book. Got you. Can you tell me what the reason was why they <laughs> fell off the cliff? 
Oh, it's so complex. I love to talk about it. I think there's like four or five reasons I've identified that are particularly um, impactful. You know, hip hop became like a dominant genre as we get through the 90s into the early 2000s. Record companies at the same time as we discussed were losing a lot of money. So they made a decision to put more time, energy and funds into hip hop because it's a singular act. You just have to really work with one person. It's a more simplistic uh, production. Like you just have a producer with a beat for the most part and then you go from there. Whereas when you have groups, it's a lot of singing, harmony, melodies, and you have to like manage three or four different members, different personalities, costs are increased, makeup artists, outfits, like it's all choreography. So it's increased cost. And, it, and this is also going on during a time when you know, the music industry was going through losing a lot of money. So they had to try to figure out to cut costs. Second yeah. reason would be in the African-American community, like when we went through the recession, like a lot of mom and pop record stores went out of business. They just went out of business. Even the big box retailers went out of business in terms of selling CDs and records. Like it's, you don't really find records at Best Buy anymore, maybe Target, but there's definitely no Tower Records. You know, like you spoke no. about, no Tower Records, no Wiz. I grew up with going to the Wiz. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And that's where, you know, for specifically for African-American groups, they would go there to do like record releases, album signings, people would be lined up around the corner during the day up to meet and greet. That's gone, so you lose that organic growth possibilities. Also, which I found just fascinating, is that if you look at the top four African-American magazines, you have Ebony, Jet, Essence, and then Vibe. They all went out of publication in that 2003 or four, like 2010 or 11. Now, some of them came back digitally, but it just wasn't the same. So when you add up the total monthly subscribers, it's about 10 million people. And that's where a lot of the African groups would get a lot of their press, a lot of their marketing. They kind of spread the word about them. So when you lose a potential of 10 million people per month learning about these groups, following them along, it has an effect. And that, that's why they disappeared. And so that's that's another reason, which is really interesting to look at. Finally, EDM music became much more mainstream and it was considered to be a little bit more, I, I'll, I'll say safer to play than maybe some of the African-American groups just with you know the lyrics and things like that. That was an issue that I discovered. And so those are like the three or four main issues we, we cover it in the book and interviewing people and trying to make predictions in terms of what will happen now. And music in general, with the advent of social media, became much more singular. YouTube, you know, usually YouTube, you just see really one person that might be singing on YouTube and, and doing the live broadcasting or doing, you know, things to get to know him. That's what Justin Bieber got his big break, just singing solo on YouTube. And that's just a common thing that continues to proliferate. And... It's really, really challenging. Like you don't really see groups and the money. Like why would I want to split and share, you know, these revenues with four people when I can, I can do it myself and maybe we could have a duet or a couple singles together, but I don't need to share all the profits. So that's probably the top five reasons that I've uncovered. It's fascinating. And so that's kind of where we are. Yeah. You, you see a lot of the, a lot of the group bands, one or two people would go off on their own and be the, the really successful yeah. ones. And mm -hmm. The other ones would just hope for the reunions. Yeah, hope for the reunions. And But, you know, historically speaking, these groups would last like 10, 11, 12 years, six or seven years. They'd last for several album cycles. And then maybe they go solo. Nowadays, it, it may barely last one album and then they're gone. So 
the game has changed, but I still feel that, you know, there's a place like African-American groups. If you look at, you know, BTS, the popular K-pop group, and you watch their choreography and you watch kind of how they're marketing and how they organize their albums, they are using the same blueprint that African-American groups made popular and successful from the 50s through mid 2000s. Right. Um, have you written about the influence African-American music has had like on the music industry in general? It just it's it seems pretty unbelievable, even back when, you know, uh, racism was at its worst. It was still such a huge influence. It was. That's that's not the current topic, but that's always a potential topic for the future, because, I mean, mm -hmm. uh, that can, we can get very in depth with just the impact there, too. Right, right. Uh, that that's super fascinating to me, uh, and just to think about it, talking about it with you right now, just all of the amazing <laughs> bands and yeah. and all of the you know even where music is today, like you know the roots are are completely African American in yeah. so many ways. Absolutely. And I remember yeah. watching Boogie Down Productions at Georgetown University. Okay, yeah, <laughs> that have been yeah, in two thousand yeah. or, or right around there. All right, I went to Howard, so we would go and come over to Georgetown every once in a while for a show. So yeah, BDP two thousand. I mean, yeah, yes. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I didn't go to that university. I was just down here. A friend of mine uh, wrote, he was writing a lot about the influence of, of rap groups back at, back then. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I wish he was on this call because he would have a lot more. <laughs> he would have a lot more to talk about knowledge than I would. I'm next gonna, time. Next time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not quite there. Um, so you've worked with the likes of like Usher, Sage, Sade, I'm sorry, Sade, Brandy. Uh, how is that? And how did you how did you come about being able to work with them? So when I say that, like we've done remixes like Usher, Sade, um, Ellie Goulding. So we've done some remixes for them, remix their work. And mm -hmm. some of it's working with them directly. Sometimes we'll do remixes through, they have a third party that will manage like remix contests, but you're allowed to share that you work with them and you've done remixes for them. Um, and so it's interesting. A lot of times you submit your work, they might like it, they might not like it. But for me, it's just about building a portfolio of artists that you work with and you can play their music and you can play your remixes. And eventually, you know, the goal is to, you know, try to really get some big placements with even bigger artists and just have them select your remix as the official one that goes on the album. That has not happened yet. They're more for like remix albums, but that's the eventual goal. Got you. Got you. Um, what do you what do you typically play? What's your What's your genre of music? What... Yeah, so I'm, of course, I'm a really big R&B guy. I love my slow jams. Um, hip hop too, little pop, funk, soul. Those are kind of my sweet spots there. I love to mix in a little salsa. Um, and you know, I can cover many, many genres, but that's kind of my sweet spot, what I love to play and DJ. Okay. Um, and you also DJ, where do you DJ and how has COVID affected yes. that? So DJ all over the world. I've DJed in places, of course, LA, uh, DC, Chicago, Toronto, Brazil, just different events. I do a lot of corporate events, social clubs, bars, um, private parties. COVID was extremely challenging. All within a week, all of my future gigs went away. I had a big summer planned in terms of DJing, speaking, that went away. I was able to find a really nice haven on Twitch where you could DJ and you know, build a community on Twitch and continue to practice and meet people and try new things. That has been a lifesaver, game changer. I love to say my COVID skills, it was live, live streaming. That's my COVID skill that I acquired and I continue to practice it. And it has changed in terms of what I'm able to offer as a company and business and just changed my perspective. So that's kind of how it is. It's coming back for me slowly but surely, but I'm 
being selective in terms of the gigs that I take um, as I kind of work through grad school and teaching too, so I have to be selective. Um, and that's what, what COVID was. So hopefully, maybe we get to like early to mid next year, you know, the new normal will be in place, but it's still a little bit tough sledding because as things ebb and flow, you just don't know what's going to happen. Right. I, I love, I, I do improv and now I just taking a comedy class, but it's starting to get back on stage, starting to get back in front of people. Uh, and it's great because that's yeah. dearly missed through the, through zoom or through, <laughs> how do you, how do you even feel the vibe or, or feel how people are, are taking in your music when you're doing it through yeah, the through digital channel? Virtual. You really have to pay attention to the chat. You can feel energy in the chat. If it's going really yeah. fast flying and people are using different emojis, emotes and talking, you can feel some energy. It will never replace in person, but at least it's a different type of energy and you can still tell whether, you know, things are going well or you need to change. So it's just people kind of talking through their computer keyboards instead of in front of you. So you just adjust and try to build and learn. And that's just another skill you can have because it is a skill to be able to be on like a Zoom call or a virtual platform and still get people engaged and want to feel comfortable talking. That's a skill and that's going to be a very valuable skill. And I just continue to be able to practice that whenever I'm live streaming DJ sets or some of my game shows. Turn up with game shows. Just threw yeah. that one in. What do you what do you do for game show wise? Yeah, well, I made a decision to try to diversify the content I did on Twitch just to kind of broaden and try to differentiate myself. Mm -hmm. So we've evolved from this game we had was Survivor, Musical Survivor, which is like different artists and we keep them on the island or vote them off the island. We've evolved from that to a dating game to now we do Family Feud, The Match Game, The Mass Singer. Um, what have we debuted recently? We do that Hollywood Squares. So kind of all the traditional games. Next up, we're trying to create Wheel of Fortune. But you do it on a live streaming platform. So people from all over the world are playing along. You have three contestants that are somewhere in their homes across the world playing. And it's just kind of like appointment TV. People watch it. They engage. Like live streaming is like interactive live TV. So it has a future because people would much rather hear the host call out their name and, and talk to them in front of everyone than just watch a static show. So that's kind of how my streaming has evolved to include game shows. Got you. Yeah, I've noticed a lot of the really good streamers or, you know, I'm, I'm in a retail type of business and I see the people that have brought their retail business online through uh, Facebook videos. Yes. They, they really say everyone's name. Like they mm -hmm. try their best to like people love that. People yes. love to yes, feel special. Do. And it's yes, we do. like we used to call and do the love line and leave mm -hmm. a message for your for your girlfriend or something. And yeah. <laughs> you yeah. hear the radio host say your name like it's still people still love that. People do. Yes. And I think that's human nature. We're, we'll always love that. So live streaming gives an opportunity to do that consistently and people will keep coming back if you continue to take care of them. Right. And I totally hear you trying to connect with people through Zoom. I think my, my podcast is really, yeah. I think I've gotten better at it. I hope you're comfortable. <laughs> oh, yes, absolutely. Yes. So yeah. it helps to be on video too. Um, so that's why it's just interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. It's uh, COVID, I think, has given a lot of people an opportunity to try something different or to, you're, you're almost forced to do something different. And whether or not you took advantage of that. Um, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For all the viewers and listeners, like my, my first book, DJs Mean Business, feel free to pick that up. That takes people through the time slots of a DJ set, 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. and relates every 15 minutes to growing a business. And um, I just love that book. I released it April 2020, so in the middle of a pandemic, but people continue to discover it and read it. 
So I just always want people to check that out if they want to learn a little bit more about kind of the mindset and what a DJ goes through during a set. Very interesting. And if people want to see your Twitch, it's twitchtv.com slash Amani experience. Yeah, twitch.tv backslash Amani experience. So that's kind of the address there. I stream Sundays, Mondays, and Wednesdays. Usually Sundays late night, 11 p.m. Eastern, Mondays, 8 p.m. Eastern, and Wednesdays, 7.30 p.m. Eastern. So just that's my schedule. Okay, perfect. And ImaniExperience.com. And we will put those links below the video and below the podcast so people can very easily get to them. Great. Perfect. Um, and thank you so much. I'm looking forward to the book. So. All right, yes. Let me know what you think when you read it. And I'm working on the second one as we speak. All right. Definitely, definitely will. So awesome. thanks again for being here. This has been great. And to everyone out there, this has been a Dweebs Global production, dweebsglobal.org. Free mentorship help. Everything from resume writing to mental health, completely confidential and completely free. And we'll see you guys next week.